Blog Talk Radio.
welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in this evening. This is T-Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online. I do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it. We'll do our best to get your question on air. We can't always get all the questions on air, but we will do our best to do that. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go, can't continue to listen online, but you'd like to continue to listen, you can call directly by dialing 347-202-0227, and you can listen live via phone, or please, please, please use your Bluetooth if you are driving around, okay? Thank you for that. As you know, we here at Energy Awareness Radio celebrate Valentine's all month long by bringing you guests that will perhaps, if applicable, help you in your Valentine relationship as you journey through this crazy maze of love and life together. Well, money, love, sex, any one of these subjects represents a plethora of complex emotions and experiences that humans have grappled with throughout history. And when you mix these issues together, you have perhaps the most challenging and combustible material known to humankind. Even in the best of economic times, over 50% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce with money issues being reported as the number one cause. My guest tonight is Deborah Price, professional money coach and founder and CEO of the Money Coaching Institute, where she provides coaching to individuals, couples, and corporations. And she's joining us to discuss her new book, The Heart of Money, A Couple's Guide to Creating True Financial Intimacy. Deborah, thank you so much for taking time to join us tonight. How are you being this evening? I'm great, T. Thank you for having me. No, you know, this is pure pleasure here. We like to get books that have that heart and money, uh, heart and money, heart and love theme. And this one came across my desk and I thought this would be good for them. What a great way to end Valentine's Day month. So, um, yeah, your book, The Heart of Money, it offers couples a practical and accessible guide to move beyond their limiting money patterns and beliefs so that they can achieve financial intimacy. And right now, that's probably more vital at this time than it ever has been in history. But you worked in financial services industries before, so it's not, you know, this is not unfamiliar to you. And I would think that the work that you did would have been so very stressful. And you left that to become a pioneer in the field of money coaching. So how is what you do now different from what you did then, and why did you decide to shift to a different aspect of finance? Well, those are great questions that um, I love to talk about because um, – you know, when I was a financial advisor and I was in the industry for over 20 years, I kept noticing these sort of repeating themes and um, experiences. And whenever I would bring them up with my bosses, you know, VPs, et cetera, I'd say, you know, these behavioral things are really fascinating, and it seems that the behaviors are, the behaviors are driving the financial decisions, and why aren't we talking about that? because it was very clear to me that, that that we were missing something and that our clients were, as a result of that, not faring as well as they could be. So, you know, they would always say, oh, don't worry about that, Deborah. Let's leave that to the therapist. Well, finally, I went and started interviewing therapists and doing research, and really across the board, every therapist I talked to said, listen, we are not trained in this area of money as well. 
We don't know anything about the money domain. We're not trained in the psychology of money. And so here you have this enormous subject that we have to deal with every day, and nobody's talking about it. It's the elephant in the room. And so I just right then and there decided that this was my path. And uh, literally 13 years ago, gave up my business and decided to form the Money Coaching Institute, and the rest is history. And it's great that you do that because it is so vital right now. According to the Center for Financial Social Work, money issues are the number one stressor in people's lives. It's a major source of depression, anxiety, insomnia, and the number one cause of divorce, as I mentioned before, even in good financial times, though. So although that isn't really news, I think a lot of people, you know, they're not really aware of that. And given the current recession and the mounting financial pressures that a lot of couples are facing, it seems to me that if people aren't making a conscious choice to be aware of their money situation, a lot of other issues and the impact of the conflict surrounding them is also going to continue to rise, and it's just going to, one's going to feed off of the other, I would think. Now, having said that, how do you feel people can, not just individually and collectively survive, but actually begin to thrive? Well, you know, the journey to be able to thrive is one of making a commitment to understanding your own relationship with money and also working with your partner or spouse to understand their relationship with money. And that is a very rich and provocative journey. So I basically wrote The Heart of Money because, it was clear to me that couples were just not doing well and the divorce rates are too high and money issues are too too frequent. So the book is really written in a way that allows couples to do that exploration on their own. And if they continue to run into problems, we have money coaches all over the place that can assist them. But if they would just go through the processes in the book, they will learn so much more about each other and that is a really big step in the right direction. Yeah, and the processes are not difficult to do, but you're right, you have to make the commitment to do them. And anything worth doing or that's worthwhile is worth doing. And so they, this book is great because it gives them the guidelines and just exactly what they need to do. Almost, well, no, it does to the point where you, you don't have to blame each other for anything. You're just following the book. Right, yeah, and if you just take them one step at a time, you're going to start peeling back the layers and begin to understand how and why you might be triggering one another. And generally speaking, most of our money issues or money patterns and behaviors uh, begin in early childhood when the brain is at its most formative state and it's beginning to become hardwired and a lot of that hard, hardwired patterning is unconscious or at the very least very much subconscious and we need to bring that to our conscious awareness i think a lot i would have thought i would have thought things would be different now because for instance my parents were brought up during the depression and still to this day they talk about the depression and how you know you can't they won't spend money on things, they really have to justify almost everything. And that being said, a lot of people were brought up in that atmosphere and learned that. So it's a learned behavior. And instead of changing from that, it seems like it just continues, although I think there are people who just spend money because 
they couldn't as they were a child. So it's almost like a double-edged sword that we have going on here. If you were brought up during a time where money was so, it wasn't that it was tight-fisted, but it was so scarce that you had to be very careful. You either went the way of being very careful or you went the way of spending, spending, spending. Which to you seems to be worse or is it like even? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't like to judge it as, you know, one's bad, one's worse than the other because the truth is is that we have, there are reasons why we are the way we are, and some of them are emotional, and some of them are really physiological. And as people begin to unravel that for themselves, they can begin to understand that, you know, these behaviors are controlling them, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so if you're the person who grew up in a very scarce environment where money was, you know, the whole subject was scary, um, the the chances of you being highly sensitized or reactive is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Then you have people who have what we refer to in money coaching as reactive patterns. And that's when somebody says, essentially, you know what, my parents were so tight and so frugal and it just like drained the life out of me and I'm not going to be that way. So they go and develop patterns of impulsivity relative to money. And that's also a pattern of self-sabotage. So the idea is that we help people to discover why they do what they do and then help them to change their behaviors and find a better, more healthy, happy medium. Why do you think it is such a heated topic between couples? I mean, it's just money. Well, it's not just about the money ever, though. In fact, money issues are often a symptom of other issues, such as power and control issues or you know, money is often used as a substitute for love or affection. Um, we also have, um, depending upon our own childhood, we're predisposed to have, you know, imagine there's just sort of a fault, a fault wire that if, depending upon how you were raised, if you're married to somebody who has patterns that are very sim- similar to, let's say, your father, who you felt was very unfair to you when it came to money and your partner starts behaving that way, they're going to trigger the old pattern. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a very, it's complex in one way because it's so unconscious for people. And in another way, once people begin to unravel it, the magic light goes off and people go, oh my God, that's why I do that. And suddenly we can have more compassion for ourselves and our, and our partner. It's a total awareness. Are there are there any uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, or therapists of any sort that are actually turning to you for um, help or training or anything like that in this area? Because it, it is pretty common. Well, the field of financial therapy has just started to grow. I am a coach, and we at the Money Coaching Institute were one of the first organizations that started training in this. So we train a lot of therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of psychiatrists, as well as a lot of social workers and, and life coaches and financial professionals as well. But the therapeutic community loves our work because it's very deeply based in a lot of Jungian uh, archetypes. And our archetypes are a great way of helping clients to understand their behaviors in a very easy way. They're very accessible. Well, they can probably also look at it and say, wow, if I had this information, I could have better helped a specific maybe couple or something like that if they knew more about it. So that's probably why they're eager and anxious to learn what it is that you are offering. 
Yeah, and we love that about the therapeutic world because we know that many therapists say to us, you know, we just don't know what to do. And so mm-hmm. we're glad to be of service. I think that's great. You know, and since most people, I think, are aware of the divorce statistics, and yet a lot of couples don't get help when issues come up and, you know, they they get in over their heads, they start watching their marriage fall apart. Why do you think they don't get more help just when the issues arise? Do you think that they just think they can handle it on their own, that they can get through it? Well, unfortunately, um, a lot of people don't know where to go, number one. Um, sometimes they'll try to go to a financial planner, and the mm-hmm. financial planner doesn't know what to do with this stuff. Um, and or they'll try to go to a therapist, and most therapists are not trained in this modality. And so the therapist could certainly help them with some of their other related couples issues, but often the therapist will not understand the money dynamics of this. Um, And I wouldn't say that's all true, but I would say it's true in more cases than not. And so people feel lost. That's one reason. The second reason is that it's taboo, and we're really not comfortable talking about money issues at all. And then thirdly, people wait too long until the the love and the trust has been deteriorated, and then the goodwill is just not as present as it was if they had caught it earlier. So, you know, I figure people really have to understand that there's nothing wrong with you if you have these issues. They happen more often than not. The trick is catching them before they go too long and before something bad happens because our relationships are where we invest so much of our time and our heart and our money. It's our total life. Every relationship is. It's your life. It's what you put into them. And, you know, that it's what you put in that you get out of it. And if you're not getting out of it what you're putting into it, you need to look at why. And it could very well easily be something as simple as this. And, and your book is great in helping people with a lot of these things. What are some of the key issues couples really should be aware of to determine if money issues are a potential for, you know, disaster in their relationship? Well, I think the the largest indicator in most relationships is simply the inability to talk about money in a healthy way without the conversation going downhill very quickly, where somebody mm-hmm. either storms off or cries or yells or something, right? So that's the biggest issue. The, the other most um, common issues that I see are things like using money as a form of power or control um, or oppression, um, using money as a way of showing your love as opposed to giving people actual love. You know, I recently had an interview with somebody who was a very wealthy man, and he was very angry because he said, you know, I gave my wife everything. I mean, he's naming all the things he gave her, you mm-hmm. know. And I said, you know, it's great that you gave her so much, and clearly that's how you 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 thought or what you thought love was. But did it ever occur to you that that wasn't what she was wanting? Mm. You know, she. some people and many people, the stuff will only go so far. But when the shine wears off, you're still left to say, you know, where's the heart? Where's the love in this relationship? Where's the demonstration and the expression of the love in this relationship? And if that's not there, something's going to go wrong eventually. Right. Money can't buy love or happiness, but people think it can. And that's why they 
depended on, let's say, their spouse to or their partner to see if that will appease them. And, and in some instances, it does. I mean, I have friends who have said, oh, we had a fight, and then he bought me this diamond bracelet. And I, I, I laugh because so what? <laughs> you oh. know, I mean, that that isn't it. Yeah, and it, I always feel that when people have to tell you things like that, that they're also simultaneously trying to convince themselves that it's enough. Yeah, and there's a lot more going on there than than they even know about probably. Yeah, it's it's too bad. It's a shame. Um, you know, I always thought money was pretty basic to understand. You know, don't spend more than you make. It's really that easy. But in our society, everybody has to keep up with the Joneses and, not only that, everybody seems to need every technological gadget that's come out. And the problem with that is some of these, I, you know, I can't live without it items come with monthly fees like Wi-Fi and Internet service. And to me, if I don't need it, why would I buy it? It's superfluous and really creates more work in some instances. That's almost like a greed thing. What What is up with the need for greed? Is it strictly just to keep up with the Joneses? Have you figured that part out? Well, um, my work is pretty deeply steeped in the field of neuroscience and neuroeconomics and, you know, understanding the relationship between the way the brain works and how we're hardwired as individuals. And the fact is, is that we as human beings are wired for desire. We're wired to want. And part of that is how we've survived, is that those shiny objects and money in the in the eye of the brain is are perceived as a commodity or a reward right and so mm-hmm. they're sort of wired that way and unless we raise our consciousness and begin to consciously choose differently um that it is our desires that ultimately appear to be uh, potentially destroying us because there's no end in sight and you know, this thing of keeping up with the Joneses, there's tons of research done that indicate the minute you try to keep up with the Joneses or your next-door neighbor, whoever they are, um, your happiness drops because the fact is we can't ever keep up. There will always be somebody with bigger, more, better, whatever. And so it's better just to figure out what it is that makes you happy and focus on that, and it's usually not going to be the stuff. Yeah, that's true. It usually isn't going to be the stuff. But, you know, some people just, again, they go back to, to to that and thinking that will solve the problem. Now, you mention in your book that money issues are often more a symptom than the actual problem in a relationship. So what can money issues be a symptom of? Well, for example, um, when let's say that uh, you have a husband who's controlling relative to money. And they want you to, you know, write down every single expense that you have and every single penny that you spend, and you know it's really overkill. And so you you become angry about that, but you can't express that anger for whatever reason. And so instead, you go and you start secretly shopping, and oh. not him. <laughs> So the so what that behavior is is a symptom of the person feeling controlled and suppressed, and then acting out in the same way in many ways that like a teenager would, because the teenager does that because they don't feel like they have any power in the relationship, and so they act out 
and we do that in our relationships too. So in money coaching, especially with couples, we're always looking at, you know, what does the behavior, what is it a sign of, you know, or symbolically, what is it a symbol of? And almost always there's something more. I rarely see it be just about money. I was going to say, it can't all, it can't, can it ever be just about money? I don't know that that works. It would have to be based on something else, wouldn't it? Well, you know, the, even couples who do really well together, you know, and almost every other area of their relationship will end up occasionally with problems relative to money because money is one of those um, subjects that we tend to have a lot of, you know, what we refer to as shadow aspects. So because we're not safe to talk about it and or because it's taboo and because we have um, maybe some negative history from childhood that's stored in the memory and we don't have conscious access to it, as well as it's physiologically um, a survival issue, right? So there's uh-huh. it's opportunistic for problems to develop even in the healthiest of relationships. Hmm. Okay. Now you use the term financial intimacy, and you're not talking about a love of money overall else. So what do you mean by financial intimacy, and how can couples best achieve that? Right, yeah, it's not about the love of money at all, so you're right there. It's really about being able to create an environment in your relationship where you can very easily, safely uh, express your wants, your needs, your desires, um, and be completely open and transparent and vulnerable without any fear of being judged or criticized or shamed or whatever. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's just, it's also, I find it also very interesting because, you know, it goes back to how the brain works and, and what people are thinking, you know, and what we get, let's say, from, you know, um, well, you, you mentioned it, we all have this unconscious inheritance that we get from our family of origin, and we grow up learning all the dynamics about money from our parents, so we're perpetuating what we're taught, and we don't really get what's happening until later. And then usually, do you find that it occurs in a kind of an aha moment type of way? You know, oh, my God, this is what my parents used to do or say or think. Is that something that's common? Well, sometimes people have a conscious awareness that they have patterns similar to their parents, but almost always there's an area that a person cannot fully see because we just as human beings have trouble seeing ourselves completely, um, usually without some kind of process that opens up the doorway a little further than what we've had conscious access to. So, you know, I've had people who've done enormous amounts of works, you know, Buddhist priests, you name it, Mm -hmm. and They'll 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 have been doing work their whole lives and clearing out junk for forever, and they'll come and do the money piece, and they'll go, oh my god, how was it possible that I didn't see that before? It's a blind spot, and it and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It's just that this is the area of our consciousness that we we are last to look into. Which is amazing because some of these people that you've probably dealt with, I'm going to bet, have a great education, you know, PhDs, masters and whatever, 
but do you think there's a lack of education that that might be the reason why people get so emotional and become illogical when it comes to money? I, you know, there's definitely a lack of education, but in my experience, that's why I left the industry, um, the financial services industry, is that I learned education is not um, is not the only answer. It's part of the answer and needs to happen. Uh, but the real problem is that we are inherently more illogical, irrational, and reactive when it comes to money because of the combination of the an an area of the brain, the primitive area of the brain, which is more reactive in general, and when we feel fearful or anxious, it gets triggered, and also because of the subconscious mind and the way we store memories, there are negative associations with money that we have forgotten about that have a daily influence on our lives. Yeah, and that needs to be brought to the forefront so that you can take care of it just like anything else. Exactly. The awareness factor, yeah. We are talking with Deborah Price, professional money coach and author of The Heart of Money, A Couple's Guide to Creating True Financial Intimacy. You can learn more about Deborah and her book by visiting the website www.moneycoachinginstitute.com. And we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
And we are back, and we are speaking with Deborah Price, professional money coach and author of The Heart of Money, A Couple's Guide to Creating True Financial Intimacy. And again, you can learn more about Deborah and her book by visiting her website, moneycoachinginstitute.com. Okay, so in your book, Deborah, you provide some tips to our listeners so that they can have sort of a heads up about money issues in their relationships. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. So some of the things that I recommend for couples is to really try to make this conversation with money something that you do on a regular basis so that it's not just, um, it's not so sensitized and triggering. So generally I recommend that you pick at least one time a month that you sit down and you engage in some form of meaningful money conversation. And, you know, look at both the practical side of money, such as, you know, I use something, I call it a monthly flow chart because people hate the word budget, you Mm -hmm. know, and look at where you are. And then start to think about, in spite of wherever you are, and a lot of people say, oh, we don't want to look at it, it's too awful. And I say, if you don't look at it and begin to think and work toward what you want it to be differently, then it will simply not happen. You know, one of the things that we know, you know, basic Newton's law of motion is that a thing in motion stays in motion, right? That's right. the same for us human beings. If you are working toward changing and improving your financial life and you're doing it together in harmony, then you will experience a change and more positive results. So, you know, I say make a plan, do what you can. It's okay It's okay if you can't make it all change overnight. But if month by month and year by year you work at it together, you're going to see an increase in your self-esteem, you're going to feel more hopeful, and you're going to get more of what it is that you want financially as well. So well, that's, you're going to strengthen your relationship too because exactly. you're working toward the same goal, you know, and you feel – I think if, you, if people did that on a once-a-month basis, they'd feel more – able to communicate, you know, when when things come up in between those monthly meetings, if you will. Exactly. And so it's really about getting on the same page. And if you're in a relationship where one of you is delegated to all the financial responsibility, I think it's important to not just be passive in that relationship. It's not good for either one of you. And so Mm -hmm. be uh, willing to participate even divide and conquer the tasks. And um, that usually causes your your partner who's responsible for all of that to feel a little bit more appreciated and acknowledged, and it also allows you to know what's going on because, God forbid, and one of the things that I've seen happen all too frequently is that when you lose your partner suddenly, and it does happen, the person who's left doesn't know what is going on or where anything is, and that's a real problem, and one we should never be in the position of having happen, right? Yes. So those are some of the practical things, but the other things are really about, um, you know, and as I mentioned, the book does have a lot of amazing exercises, but one of the things that I'm a big advocate of is, really working toward co-creating and inventing the life that you want, not the prescribed life that, you know, you think the American dream is about or what your neighbors have or your or your relatives, but what is it that the two of you really want to create? 
And if you have a family, what kind of values and priorities do you want to focus on? People are often very upside down in in relationship to they don't put their money where their values are. And that's a very important thing. Um, So the other thing is when you do have money issues is to address them head on. Don't let them go too long because those tend to build anger and resentment and often will result in some self-sabotaging behaviors. So it's really important to be proactive around whatever money issues or disagreements that you have. (coughs) You should really market your book to, like, wedding stores. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, is I totally agree with you. You'd think that's a market, but a lot of um, soon-to-be-married people don't want to talk about money because they're afraid that their partner, if they found out, you know, about them financially, because this is where we have a lot of guilt and shame, that maybe they won't want to marry them. You know, maybe they have a bad credit score or credit history, or maybe they – have debt that they don't want to disclose or any number of things. And in in my perspective, you know, I believe, you know, your credit score or your bank balance is not who you are, period. Right. And But what you do need to do is be honest with your partner. And if your partner can't handle where you really are, they might not be the right person for you. Anybody yeah, I agree. Anybody who loves you, who judges you, you have to question yeah, in any area, not just money. Yeah, they shouldn't be judging you for anything. But, you know, with, with money, it's um, you got to lay it on the table so that you know what you get. Each person knows what the other person's getting into so you can handle it head on. And I think that's a, a point that you drive home very well is you need to put it out there. You really need to talk about money. Don't be afraid to talk about money. It's not that big a deal. It's just money. You know, nobody's going to live or die because they don't have money. But you have to put it out there and you have to know where it is. And and, people laugh at me because every year I do a household budget. And I do it in August for the next year. And I remember one year my car broke down and I needed a car. And I was like, well, you know what? I can't get a car right now because it's not in the budget. (laughs) Now, I did get a car, but the fact was it was like, okay, no, I know I can do it. I just didn't have it in the budget. I always believed, I was taught in actually high school, I think, that if you have a budget, you will have more money because then you know what to do with your money. It's just something that you put in different categories. You know, you pay the utility bills and you pay, you know, whatever your mortgage and you pay whatever you have to do and then, but you always pay yourself first. And I learned that early on and and that was something that, I don't know, I always thought that was a good thing to do because that way you know where it is. But people laugh because I literally have a budget. Do a lot of people have a budget or... You know, I'm just odd. (laughs) Well, um, you would be what I would refer to as more of the warrior archetype. The warrior archetype is the archetype of action. They're more disciplined when it comes to money. They are one of the more healthy financial types. And Mm -hmm. they like to know because they like to be prepared and they like to plan. And so that's a really good thing. But um, inherently, I'll, I'll tell you, I've worked with thousands of people over the years People hate the word budget. You know. It just, it's like, you know, nails on the chalkboard. So that's why I never call it a budget. Right. I say, let's talk about your monthly flow chart. And they're like, I love that idea. You know, and this is just very much a psychological phenomenon because budget means 
um, that I have to be tight and constrained and not have any fun and, ooh, yuck, you know. And so Yeah, and I can't spend money, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think you have a – you have to have – you have to know where you are in order to know where you're going. Otherwise, it's never going to happen, right? Right. So, you know, I I talk in terms of a spending plan, a savings plan. You know, there you can have as many categories for spending money as you want, but you need to have enough money to allocate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometimes, that's, you know, couples will get into part. arguments. But we never spend money on vacations. And I'll say, so, well, let's look at what, where you are right now and what's left over. What, is, what are the leftovers? And the husband will go, we don't have any leftovers. That's why we don't have a vacation in our budget. And she'll go, well, we need to plan for that. And it's like, okay, yes, you do. It's important to plan for it. And if you don't plan for it and he just shuts down and says, we can't do a vacation, then, you know, the energy starts to leak out of your relationship because there's no hope. If you're not at least trying and planning for it together, it won't happen. That's and very so true. That's yeah. one of the dynamics between couples is to just stay open and plan and work toward it and get creative and have some fun in the process. And you can have fun with it because you can see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and say, okay, we need to save for a house. And isn't it fun to accumulate that money so we have a down payment for a house? And, you know, we might not be able to do go out to dinner three times a week because that's outrageously expensive, but we'll be able to have a house in two years and then it will be worth it. So it is a mindset. It is an awareness. And you have to kind of make it fun. And if it's not fun then people aren't going to do it. I guess I never minded the word budget because there was no other word for it. But I did like it when I read that you were talking about a flow chart. I thought that was kind of funny. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, it's All funny that you said, mirrors, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, but you know what? You're right. It's very psychological. To... Yeah. Uh, exactly. You, you have to. You have to get to them. Um, and it's, you know, you're talking about different people. I liked the money type quiz, and it was funny you brought that up and said that, well, you're the warrior, because that's exactly what I came out to when I took the quiz myself. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, I but can read very quickly. You know, archetypes are a language, and so you can hear in people's language they're speaking an archetype. And so I listen for the words people use in order to help myself understand what archetype they may be. Mm-hmm. You spoke in clear warrior language. In clear warrior language. I do warrior and yoga. Does that count? Maybe that's it. <laughs> it helps. It helps. Um, no, I think that's a great test because then it puts the two people. Let's say you have somebody who's a warrior and somebody who's – I didn't even read the other ones really because I thought, you know, okay, I'm the warrior, but uh, the magician sounds interesting. Who's that? <laughs> well, the magician is the ideal money type, and it represents the the person who has gone the distance and done the work to understand their own money patterns and behaviors at a very deep level. Um, and then they have transformed the money types that are perhaps challenging them or causing them to sabotage in ways that they were previously not fully conscious of. So the magician is the money type that tends to be pretty open and aware. Um, they've worked through their money issues, whatever they may be. Sometimes they're practical, sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're even spiritual. And so they're the archetype of balance and faith. Hmm. 
it's great because you can find out what you are. Your partner can find out what they are. But then you have the, uh, what do you call it, the pairings in couples, like common archetypes of pairings in couples, which I found very interesting. Right. And that's every couple um, has a an archetypal pairing that is sort of like a sometimes you have two dominant people and sometimes you have a dominant passive and then sometimes you have two passive people. So an example of a dominant passive would be the warrior married to an innocent. And that's a pretty good combination for the most part because the warrior really likes being in charge of the money and is good at it, and the innocent really doesn't want to deal with money at all. They kind of have their head in the sand, and they feel very disempowered. So that can be a very good relationship. Now, if you are two dominants and you're a tyrant and a warrior, then you have a battle of control. So that can be problematic. And and then if you're two passives, you could be an innocent and a fool archetype and basically – um, the innocent is not going to be paying attention, and the fool is probably going to do things that have consequences to your life financially. So those are examples of the way those archetypal pairings work. The um, It's funny because in my relationship, it's warrior, warrior, only there's no competition. It's just, you know, just make it, put it in the pool, and figure out what we're going to do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it works for me. Yeah, That's two hard. warriors work really well together. I would like to say, though, is that almost everybody has more than one archetype. Mm-hmm. So when you when you do the scores, you want to take the scores that you have in every category, mm-hmm. and the just one archetypal score does not give you a full indication of your full archetypal patterning. So anything that you score really four or higher is an influencer. So your primary warrior is where you live day in and day out, but when you get triggered, where do you go? And that's when the other scores will manifest and suddenly when one of you goes into reaction. The um, the fact that, that you have these archetypes, as people get increases and become more successful, do the archetypes change? They can, Absolutely. You know, one of the saddest things that that I have seen um, is that, you know, people will be, you know, one archetype. Let's say they're um, an innocent, and Mm -hmm. suddenly they come into an inheritance and um, or, you know, whatever may happen. Well, that person is likely to either um, put their head in the sand and not do anything with the money and or give it to people who are untrustworthy or should not be trusted, um, and the money will be gone in about three to five years. Mm. Um, So then they're going to become the victim. Or you could be the fool archetype and say, oh, my God, I've got all this money, and suddenly the fool archetype would have the tendency to go out and say, let's start this business and let's spend this money here and let's go to Vegas and Next thing you know, they're also broke. And so, you know, yes, you can move to another archetype, but people seldom move to a more positive archetype without having the awareness of some of those more shadowy patterns. Okay, and that's probably why so oftentimes we hear somebody won a huge amount of money in the lottery and then it was gone 
within a year or two. Yeah. It's about um, three to five years max, um, even with inherited wealth. So many people just lose the money. And even in in the very ultra-wealthy, the statistics are 70% of all wealth is lost by the third generation. And that's not because these are not smart people, by the way. It's because their behaviors are unconscious and there's an underlying agenda and influencers that are unconscious. And these drivers are very powerful inside of us. Yeah, it's it's something that people really need to look at. I think one of the one of your um best chapters maybe, I don't know, I just thought it was great, was common money traps and issues and how you have within that different things people can do to to get past those traps and exercises within that chapter on, you know, do we need help? You're answering questions, determining you're enough, things like that that people can really get a good handle on. And, you know, if they read the book from cover to cover and then go back and do these, I would think that would be really helpful to just go in and, and take every single one of these exercises and, you know, read the book in full so you know what you're getting into and then just do the exercises. Like one of them is determining your true value and worth. People don't do that. They don't even think about that. Yeah. And yet there's an exercise for them to do it, which is really, it, it, it's great because the first question is how do you actively and consciously value your partner? That's a loaded question. Right. And and sometimes without even intending to, we devalue one another in our relationships. Mhm. Very yep. much devalue. And, you know, I've I've heard uh some very painful um messages come out of the mouths of my clients like, you know, they'll be sitting there and they're talking about, well, you know, we just don't have enough and there's never enough and you know, the the partner will say, listen, I work every day. I do everything I can for you and our family, and nothing I ever do is ever enough. And my fear is that even if I make more, 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 it will still never be enough. And that is the feeling. The feeling there is you do not value me. You value my money and what I do for you. But me as a person, I don't feel even in the formula. And that's yeah. a problem. That's a real problem. That's a whole different issue. <laughs> but it's not uncommon, sadly. Right. And it is sad. It's very sad. Uh, and, you know, to overcome their financial challenges and, and any setbacks or anything, you even have a chapter on that that talks about uh, getting past these things so that in their exercises in their as well, and the one I think I liked the best was honoring your differences because people don't honor each other enough. Instead, they point a finger and blame. And if you can just honor that, I'm different from you, but somehow we need to make this work together. Isn't that what the whole goal of the partnership was, whether it's a marriage or living together or whatever the arrangement is in the relationship? If it's a relationship where money is part of the relationship, in, in that you're pulling it together somehow. There's got to be something something there that 
you're both bound by. It might not be love. It could be a business partnership, but there's something you're both bound by that's not just the money. You came together as a partner because of, you know, business expertise and somebody was creative and somebody had the, the business side, whatever it is. And to, to honor those differences while you're in the midst of doing this. That's right. That's right. And sometimes people bring uh, many different values and importances to relationships that are not monetary. And so that's one of the ways that we devalue homemakers, for example. You know, and so it's like, well, you're not making the money, so you really don't have any say. And it's like, really? You know, mm-hmm. let's put an, an economic value on my contribution to our household and raising our children. Why don't we start there? If I weren't here and you had to pay someone to do my job, what would that cost you? That usually yeah. costs them. <laughs> usually does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you need a chauffeur, you need a person to do laundry, you need the, the cook and the house cleaner and the and the nanny. You know, you start adding it all up and it becomes very, very expensive. Um, it's funny because I was speaking with somebody just yesterday who was telling me she's so in fear of becoming homeless. And I was in shock because there's no way on God's green earth, unless they just gave everything away, that they would just suddenly become homeless. And well, that's what I that, meant when I said that a lot of our money fears are not rational. They're emotional. Yeah. And the fear yeah. is not about, for most people, what they think it is. But, you know, the thing about a warrior is that they seldom ever feel that way because they feel like they're so capable that, you know, no matter what, a good warrior says, you know what, I can reinvent myself if I have to. I could mm-hmm. sell snow to snowmen, you know. Um, so, but certain archetypes who do not feel as empowered when it comes to money and making money have way higher levels of fear, and the the fear is real to them, but it's not rational because I even know people who are multimillionaires who feel this way. It's not rational, but it is part of this biological, physiological thing that we have going on, and what we have to do is learn strategies to calm that down, and that is part of what we do in money coaching. Are there any um, specific times or triggers in a marriage or a relationship when when the money issues are more apt to come up? Definitely. Um, The most common time for relationships to have issues are when a family decides they're going to start having children and they, they reduce down to one income. And if they haven't really planned that out well, um, and or they've underestimated because they haven't been doing those monthly money meetings, then mm-hmm. suddenly the financial stressors in the relationship can begin to take its toll. And, and suddenly where there may have been a lot of peace and harmony and love, there can become a lot of conflict. Um, the other time that this is really prevalent is when the children are grown and suddenly they're empty nesters and perhaps the way that they've had agreements about money up to that point um, weren't fully working for both people, and one of them says, look, this this system, it's not working for me. It's not okay with me that, you know, you make the money and I don't have any say or whatever it is, and that's a point in time where things can start to get very conflicting. And it's also the most common time of divorce because a lot of people wait till the kids are gone to divorce. And I was just going to say that. 
resolved by then, that's where trouble looms. Yeah, and then, I, I was, yeah. Yeah, and I also see a new sort of thing happening. Maybe it's just new to me, but I'm seeing a lot more retired couples get divorced. Really? Yeah, just at the beginning Why? of retirement. Yeah, and I think that that must have something to do with that um, the the love has probably deteriorated and the couple no longer feels like um, they want to continue to invest in the relationship and or they figure they just want to take their half now and <laughs> make the best that they can with it, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I'm sitting here laughing. I'm thinking, well, you know, years ago when you picked up the newspaper, you very rarely saw somebody was celebrating a 50th wedding anniversary, and now it's pretty common. People died earlier, and now they're living longer, so they're stuck living together longer. You know, there's got to be a way to just kind of match people up a little bit differently, you know? It should be marriage, marriage licenses should be like fishing licenses. I have a friend who says this all the time. It should be like a fishing license. Do I want to renew it every two years or not? <laughs> Or women just need to start marrying younger men because the truth is is that most of the wealth transfer in the world is going from men to women because we're still outliving men. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons that I really encourage women to become more financially aware and empowered because someday it'll probably be theirs. And if they're not prepared, things generally don't go well for them. That's very true. I had a friend, we were having a discussion in like, I think it was October or November, quite a few years ago, and we were talking about money. And they were laughing at me because of the way that I do a budget, and, and I know what's going on within my group here. And she said she didn't know anything. And she's an accountant, a CPA, and she said, I don't know anything, I don't know what's going on. And then in February, her husband suddenly passed away. And she called me up and said, you have to help me because I don't know what's going on. And we went through stuff. And now, I'm not a financial planner or anything like that. And I said, are you sure you want me to get involved? Because this is very personal. And she said, yeah. I said, okay, I'll help you. And I did help her, but it wasn't my job to do that. But I felt bad for her. And I thought, how can you not know this stuff? And women, even to this day, they say, oh, but it's okay. No, it's not. You really need to know. You need to take your power back and know what's going on so that if something does happen suddenly, you have some idea of how you're going to live out the rest of your days. But people don't do that. That's right. And, you know, the, even younger women, you know, sometimes women will start to want to ask more questions as they get older because they start being worried that their spouse, something might happen. But mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of younger women who were widowed with children yeah. who didn't know. And maybe they never even said to their spouses, you know, we should maybe get some life insurance in case something happens. And then I can't even tell you how tragic it is for a young widow or widower to end up with two or three kids and no money and try to figure mm -hmm. out how to run that life. It's very, yep. very hard. It is, because this friend of mine had two children, and she knew absolutely nothing. Now, she she ended up finding out information, and she was able to survive and, and live in the house and stay there and everything. But, boy, it was a bit of a mess for a while. And we are at, almost at the top of the hour, Deborah. However, before we go, would you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your work and how and where they may purchase your book, The Heart of Money? Absolutely. You can find out more about me and the Money Coaching Institute at um, moneycoachinginstitute.com. 
and you can buy the book, uh, The Heart of Money, A Couple's Guide to Creating Financial Intimacy on Amazon. Your local bookseller may carry it and or Barnes & Noble. Oh, great. Okay, so it's available everywhere. And, you know, I just wanted to thank you so much again for taking time to be with us tonight. I know you have a bit of a cold, and I you probably want to get back to bed, and, and I just appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. I think um, I think there's a lot of good information here, and people need to go out and get this book, The Heart of Money, A Couple's Guide to Creating True Financial Intimacy. And listeners, we need to, you to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered on the show. Each and every one of my guests share their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes of their day. And as you're aware, they do it at no charge. You pay nothing for the wisdom and knowledge that you receive here at Energy Awareness Radio from all of these wonderful guests who share their time and expertise with us. So please be sure to pass the word, make others aware, share it with your friends and family so they too will be able to grow and learn and make this world better for everyone. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantum-wellness-center.com. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. When I remember how